Well, good morning, everybody. So when we were talking this week, one of the things I told Marcy is, you know, we, we believe that we're commanded to come and worship the Lord every Sunday morning. We come, we worship, we hear the word, we take communion together, and uh, that's what we're called to do. And so that's what we're going to do this Sunday, like any Sunday. But they had a private family service yesterday that was so beautiful and honoring to Joe. And I know so many of you have reached out uh, wanting to know what you can do, how you can help. And some of that is just so beautiful because, like Grant was saying, the first thing we ever knew about the Carricks was being welcomed. And our first time ever in Carlton Landing was in the Red Barn. Now, it was the middle of COVID, and they decided we were going to have baked potatoes. And so they took care of everybody by packaging all the sides in individual containers. So you got a baked potato and a huge stack of little cups to put on your baked potato, and it was awesome. We call those ramekins. Ramekins. <laughs> ramekins, wow. So we got our stack of ramekins, and we were welcomed into the Red Barn, and, and that ended up being a pattern for us. We were over at your house just a couple of weeks ago, and um, we have just been so welcomed by them like so many. And um, this morning, I can't help but think of Terry Trammell a couple of weeks ago, if you're here preaching on those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. And um, we've sown in tears this week, but Joe is reaping with shouts of joy now. And so I wanted Marcy to get to come and say a couple of words before we read our scripture and have our sermon this morning. My husband Joe moved away from Carlton Landing this Tuesday, but he's got Jesus as a neighbor now. And he, he loves Jesus. He loved me and he loved our family. But he loved Jesus before he loved me. He loved this church. I'm not talking about this beautiful building. I'm talking about this church. And you all have shown so much love. You've shown us Jesus' love this week. Our family has been blown away, haven't we? It's unbelievable. Usually when our family's here, Joe and I pull back because it's family. Sometimes I don't even go to Bible study that morning because it's a treasured time to stay home, fix breakfast, have the grandkids running around. We're lucky we didn't have number 10 this week. <laughs> Give us a few more days. <laughs> so many people have said, Marcy, how are you holding up? You're just beaming because you would think if you're in my shoes... You'd be a basket case. You'd be falling apart. Losing your, your best friend for 45 years next month. How am I doing? You really want to know? Drop by and see me. I'd love to share with you how our family has the love of Jesus. And I'm not alone Joe was the love of my life, but Jesus is my plus one now, and he's even better than Joe. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'd love to just share Mr. Joe's stories with you. So many of you have shared those with our family, things we never knew. I knew about Bill. I was there for the ramekins and the baked potatoes. Let us share our story with you. Thank you so much. And Cole and Laura, 
Our church is so blessed to have you. Thank you. Okay, I love you, Marcy Carrick, whole family. Um, when I, I had to call and tell all my kids about Mr. Joe this week and some of the stories, especially Emma, who got to lead worship with Mr. Joe, so I can't wait to come over and talk. Um, okay, this morning I'm going to read from Psalm 46. It says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear... Though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when the morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. So if you know Laura and I at all, or me really in particular, you know that we're coffee snobs. And we're doing our best to recover from that. But we're just downright snobbish about it. There's no, there's no getting around it. In fact, one of the things that Joe and I first bonded on was coffee. And he likes his coffee strong as well. So at our elder meetings, I would always say, this is really good tea, Joe. <laughs> uh, just to tease him a little bit. But uh, Laura and I, one of the things, we do love our coffee. But one of the things that I really have never kind of gotten about coffee and other things are like this too is you get this bag and they have like six flavors that you're supposed to taste in this bag. And it's not just like regular flavors. It's like, you know, flower blossoms and roasted walnuts. And you're like, how can you be that specific? Or sometimes it just says earthy, which is a flavor I typically avoid, you know, except in coffee and other things. But we went to this thing one time, and they were, it was at a roastery. And uh, they were telling us, they put this wheel in front of us, and they're like, all right, trace the taste to the very last drop. So we're doing that, you know, you're kind of swishing it around in your mouth. And people are saying all these profound things. And this one guy, they're like, what do you taste? And this guy's like, soy sauce, I think. <laughs> I was like, the biggest, most disrespectful thing you could ever say at a coffee tasting. But he wasn't wrong. I was getting little hints of that as well, actually. But there was a place in Kansas City where we used to live called the Wild Way. And one of the things they do that I thought was just so cool is you would get uh, an espresso or a coffee or something like that, and then you had an add-on if you wanted to, which is called You Can Make It Wild if you want to. So before I even knew what that was, I was like, I want that. I, that's what I want. And what happens is they give you a little ramekin with 
uh, a couple of, sometimes it's like a slice of lemon, sometimes it's a kind of nut, sometimes it's a different kind of fruit, but it is a little taste of what you're going to taste in what you're about to drink. And I tell you what, guys, it was the most amazing thing. When you take a little bite of what's coming, and then you drink that coffee, your palate explodes with flavor because you know what to expect, right? Your tongue and your mouth are ready for what's coming. And you've had a tiny little preparation taste, a little message that's come your way so that when the real thing gets there, you are going to see what you need to see. You're going to taste what you need to taste. You're going to experience what you need to experience. And in the Psalms, this is God making our life wild. He's giving you a taste of every human emotion, every experience, every situation you can walk through so that when you encounter it, you will see what he wants you to see, you'll feel what he wants you to feel, you will know what he wants you to know. And so when we take time to pray through these psalms or study them or we preach through them in the summer, it's because we want that little taste that prepares us for when life happens, we get to do it and see it and taste it God's way. God's way. So this morning, let's get our palates ready to see tough times the way God sees them. So if you know this psalm at all, in Psalm 46, it starts out with one of the most resounding, encouraging choruses in the Bible. God is our refuge and strength, especially he is very present. This means like speedily present, like closer than your skin present in times of trouble. God is our refuge. He's the only one we can turn to in times of trouble, and he is there especially. You think about verses like, he is near to the brokenhearted. God is very present in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the bottom drops out, though the worst thing happens. And so you study this, and you're like, this is kind of a downer. I mean, this really is kind of a downer psalm. Well, just wait till you're in a downer, and you remember these words, and you feel God rush to you. And so what I want to do is explain the way that this psalm confronts and what's our appetite for what we might experience. And what this psalm does is it starts with a chorus, and then it repeats it with a variation twice more. If you look in verse 1, God is our refuge and strength. Verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Verse 11, the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. And then in between... The psalmist is going to talk about three scenarios that might play out in your life. So the first thing is a contrast between a present and a future city. Now, you have to look closely to pick this up because what they thought in cities and what we think about in cities were sometimes different. If you're in the ancient world, there's three things that you have to worry about if you're living in a city. The first one is natural disasters. Their cities were not built in such a way to withstand any kind of natural disaster. Earthquakes, floods, tornadoes, anything that could happen would put you in immediate danger. And as we know from history, just think about the town of Pompeii. Natural disasters change the course of civilizations. Without any notice, a volcano explodes. Everybody is frozen in time, doing exactly whatever it was they were doing. So a natural disaster in verses 1 through 3 feels like a mountain, the most stable thing that you could find in the ancient world, falling off of its stand into the sea. 
See, they wouldn't have been able to imagine this happening. Now, we can imagine this happening. We have technology that can actually destroy a mountain. But for them, it was like, what's the most stable thing you can think of? A mountain. Every city was built on a mountain. Up until a certain point in time, it was the only way to stay safe. But what happens if the mountain you've built your city on all of a sudden begins to slide into the sea? So you didn't want a natural disaster to happen. You didn't want a conquering army to come to your gates. That was another thing that happened all the time. If a conquering army comes in, you are toast. If you can't get out, you're just biding your time until somebody bigger and stronger comes and conquers your city. And then the third thing is judgment from God. Judgment either from God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, or what they believe, judgment from other gods that would be a territorial God who is now conquering your territorial God. And sorry, you got the short end of the stick. So what this psalm does is it frames up these three scenarios and says, how can you withstand these things? The first is it contrasts the city of man and the city of God. So the cities that we live in are marked by certain characteristics, and the city of God is marked by one specific, very important characteristic. See, the psalmist starts out by saying, we won't fear even though the earth gives way. Even though the mountains might be moved in the heart of the sea and the waters of the sea are roaring and foaming and there's chaos everywhere and the mountains around are trembling at the sea swelling, like they're going to be overtaken. See, the word in this passage that's most important is the word totter or the word shake. But it's, it's even more than the word shake because it's like shaking and you know it's about to fall. See, there's three times that this word is used in this passage. First of all, we know that the mountains totter. The mountains are on the verge of falling. We also know later on that the kingdoms of the earth totter. Even the greatest kingdoms in the history of the world have fallen. Those totter. But in the middle, we get this assurance. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. But he utters his voice. The earth melts. The city of God never shakes. The city of God can never be moved. The city of God can never fall into the sea. Secondly, he's contrasting the difference between a city besieged and a city of God. If you look at verse 4, there's a river, on the other hand, whose streams make glad the city of God. Notice that Psalms are mostly image-based. They're not as emphatic as some of the other parts of the Bible in their meaning. They're, they're mostly painting a picture for you to think about and to experience. And the picture here goes from waters that are foaming and swelling and churned up and chaotic to a gentle stream that runs right through the middle of a city. See, the difference between the city of the world and the city of God is God is in the midst of her, and she will never be moved. God is in the midst of her, and she will never be moved. See, in ancient cities, you really wanted to have a river in your city, because if you were being besieged, the first thing you're going to need is water. And if you don't have your own water supply, you are dead within a week. The, the ancient world revolved around the necessities of life, shelter, food, and water. And the hardest of those to come by is water. So what you did was you built a city to make sure that you had an internal water source. It was a risky move to borrow a water source that was miles away or that was in a neighboring city because if something happened to you, that would be immediately cut off. And so the city of Jerusalem actually is built on springs, but they're slightly outside the walls of the old city. So if you want to understand what's happening in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, it's almost always about 
keeping that water supply within the walls of Jerusalem. How does Jerusalem eventually get conquered from the Jebusites? Well, David and his men sneak into the spring and make sure they've got the water. How does Babylon come in and conquer Jerusalem? They end up figuring out a way to limit the water supply of the city. But what this city, the unique part about this city is it has its own river, its own spring that can never be moved. See, in the ancient world, Jerusalem was not like the greatest city in the world. It's a great city for us because it's in the Bible. But if you were an ancient person and you were like, man, great cities, that would be like Rome. Rome was the greatest city the world had ever seen. In fact, they called it the eternal city. The eternal city of Rome. It will never fall. It will never be taken. It will never be topped. It is the city. And in the New Testament, that is the case. Rome is the place. And the Jews live in Jerusalem. They love Jerusalem. But everybody knows Rome is the city. And so it's funny at the end of the Bible that you see a vision of this city, and it's called the celestial city, an eternal city beyond comparison, and it's coming down, and John is like, oh my gosh, it's not Rome, it's not Athens, it's Jerusalem, right? For us to be like, it's not New York City, it's not LA, it's, it's Cleveland. That's, that's the city, it's, it's Cleveland that's coming down. Now, how would you, how you would even recognize this? No offense to people from Cleveland, I wouldn't know. But for most of the people in the world, they're like, what city is that? It's God's city. It's the city of Jerusalem. And it has a spring in the middle of it. And what the psalmist is saying here is you have to build your life in such a way that you have your own spring inside or you will be cut off at the first sign of danger. See, the message here is the one that Jesus stands up and says in one of my favorite Jesus scenes in the Gospels. In John 7, he's at a feast, and he stands up and shouts, it says, On the last day of the feast, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture says, out of his heart will flow living water. Do you want to be stable when bad things happen? Do you want to have a secure foundation when the mountains in your life fall into the depths of the sea? Make sure you have an internal spring. Make sure you have living water that's pouring out of your heart so that if everything around you is besieged and everything around you is being conquered, your life is flourishing because of the water of life, the water of God, the city of God is watered while all the nations rage and totter. See, the contrast between these cities is natural disasters, conquering armies, the judgment of God can come for every other city. But this city is different. Not because it's better fortified, not because it's all that more impressive, but because God's in the middle of it. Because God's in the middle of it. So how do you be unconquerable? Live in the city of God. Live in the city of God. Hope in a new city waiting for us, a water source that's coming. In fact, if you turn to the end of your Bible and you go to Revelation, one of the things that we always talk about in Revelation is the features of this city. And they are significant. They are basically a representation of things that we see elsewhere in the Bible. And it's got streets of gold. It's got these foundations. It's got gates and walls. And it's got all these amazing features. But I want you to pay attention to how this city is introduced in chapter 21. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea, that's the sea in between us and God, was no more. And I saw the new city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The psalmist is training us. He's giving us a taste to say, do you want your life to be impregnable? Do you want to be fortified? Don't be like the earthly cities. Be like the heavenly city where God is in the midst. Now, the second thing that this psalm teaches us is not just a contrast between these cities, but it gives us hope in a past event, in a past event. So if you look up at the superscription of this psalm, that's the little, sometimes it's in italic, sometimes it's in a little font. Above the psalm, we usually skip these, but this one is really important. To the choir master of the songs of Korah, of the sons of Korah, according to Alamoth, we have no idea what that means, a song. So who are the sons of Korah? This is important. Most of the time we think Psalms, that's David, but it's a lot of other people as well. There's a lot of other authors in the Psalms, and the sons of Korah actually have two sets of songs that they composed for worship in the temple in Jerusalem. So if you start in verse 40, in chapter 42 and go to 49, and then in the mid-80s from 84 through 88, except for 86, you have these songs from the sons of Korah. And if you do a little research, you figure out these sons of Korah have a very interesting background. In fact, one that you're like, why are these guys worshiping and writing songs in the temple? We find out a little bit of evidence about what they were doing in 1 Chronicles, and not the exciting part of 1 Chronicles. This is the genealogy of 1 Chronicles. So you dig through there, and all of a sudden you find out that these sons of Korah were appointed by David to organize the worship in the temple. These sons of Korah are Levites. Levites are priests. They're the family that takes care of the sacrifices and the worship and what God is doing. And these sons of Korah have been specifically set aside by David as a family who takes care of the worship and the singing and the praising that goes on in the temple. But there's actually something even more interesting than that. If you go back to the book of Numbers in chapter 16, Moses and the people of Israel have left Egypt, and they are in the wandering part of the desert. And in fact, they are not even that far into the wandering yet, and the people are starting to rebel. Do you remember this? All the people of Israel do in the wilderness is complain. At least they fed us in, Israel, in, in Egypt. At least we had roofs over our head. At least we had onions and leeks and stuff like that. And Moses is constantly dealing with their complaining over and over again. God sends down food. They complain that it's not the right food. God leaves them by a pillar of fire, and he gives them the Ten Commandments, and they're like, a golden calf would be a little easier to worship. These people are relentless with complaining. And so finally what happens is there's a group of people led by Korah who decide with 250 of the chieftains of Israel, they've had it with Moses. In fact, what they say is, why do you and Aaron think you're so much holier than everybody else? Bossing everybody around like that. What gives you the right to speak for God? We, we're going to speak for God now. So what Moses does is, Moses decides, all right, we'll just let God figure it out. So what they do is they go to their separate sides, and Moses gets down and prays, and the glory of the Lord appears, and Moses says, all right, show us which, which people you want us to look to. And all of a sudden, the earth opens up and swallows Korah and the rebellion. I mean, swift justice. Moses is in charge. Do not challenge his leadership. 
But then in Numbers chapter 26 it said, and their households and everything go with them, but then in Numbers chapter 26 it says, but the sons of Korah did not die. Some of the sons did, but others did not. The sons of Korah did not die. And all of a sudden, 300 years later, you know what they're still calling themselves? The sons of Korah. The sons of Korah. Now, why would you do that? Why would you call yourself after somebody who complained against the Lord, rebelled against Moses, was judged by God? Why would you call yourself that? You might do that if you wanted everybody to know that your core identity was in serving God. We look back to a historic event, the sons of Korah said. We look back to an event of deliverance. Not because we are great, but because God is great. And in fact, if you called yourself a son of Korah, it means that there's an event in the past where your life was spared, and that defines everything about you. And you know, the thing that's so interesting about this is we have a historical event that defines us. Sometimes we're tempted into thinking that Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are some spiritual, ethereal event that if you're a Christian, you kind of believe in and trust in, and if you're not, you don't care anything about. But what actually is the case in the Bible is the resurrection is a historical event. It's not presented like it happened in a land far, far away. It happened in Jerusalem. Everybody saw it. And then Christ rose from the dead, and hundreds of people saw him. And so Christians, if you're a first century Christian or if you're a 21st century Christian, say, my life is characterized by one historic event, that Jesus came and died and I should have died with him, but now I'm alive because Jesus rose from the dead. That's your core identity, spared from death. You know, they actually called Christians, Christians in Acts, as an insult. It was a very Sons of Korah kind of deal. The Sons of Korah means you guys trace your lineage back to somebody who was guilty of rebellion. And they called people Christians like little Christs, almost joking at them. Because you remember what happened to Christ, right? He was that guy that proclaimed that he was the Messiah, and they put him to death. The Romans stripped him naked, hung him on a cross, and made sure that nobody would ever do what he did again. And the Christians in the first century were like, yeah, I like that. Little Christs, that's us. People who deserve to die, who've been spared from death. That's my identity. I should have perished, but I didn't because of the grace of God. And so these sons of Korah are writing, hey, even if things go really bad, like, I mean, if mountains start to be moved and stuff, like if the earth opens up or something like that, we will still trust God because our identity is in what God has done for us. And if you're a Christian, we plead on behalf of the resurrection of Christ, that we can be in the presence of God. Now, here's the last thing. Not only is this talking about a contrast between what we build our life on and a historic event that changed everything for us, there's also a present hope in this psalm. There's a present hope. We look forward to the city of God, we look back to the cross, and now we trust in God. There's a book that I just absolutely love called What I Talk About When I Talk About Running. And it's not because I'm a runner. I just think it's a really interesting book. Because what the author Haruki Murakami did was he went and interviewed all these marathon runners and said, what do you do to get through the marathon? Like, what, what do you do when you're on a training run or when you're in a race and you are in so much pain, you don't think you can go a step further? What do you do in that spot? 
And the book is essentially interviewing all these people and talking about what they do. And do you know what the most common thing that people do when they're in a spot like that is? They pick out a mantra, and they begin to repeat it to themselves over and over and over again. In fact, what he found is if you want to, if you want to survive, you will pick out a mantra, you will repeat it, and you won't let it go until you get to the end. That's the best way to get through a marathon, which if you've ever read a, ran a marathon, I've run two half marathons, you need a mantra to keep going. And you've got to pick something out, and you've got to focus on it, and you can't let it go, or else your legs are going to stop running. And in this passage, the psalmist is doing something a little bit different. In the ancient world, they had mantras, but they called them watchwords. Right? We use the word watchword now kind of to mean like a theme of your life. And that, that it's become, it, it means that now, but in the first century, it was a military term. And what a commander would do is every morning the commander would get up, whoever's the, the general in charge or the emperor in charge, and they would tell their top lieutenants the watchword. Now, the watchword meant, you must say this word in order to get into my presence. So if you're a Roman emperor, your security is at the apex of your concerns. You have a whole praetorian guard that's in charge of keeping people away from you, unless they know the watchword. And it doesn't matter if they are your spouse or your child or another commanding officer. If they don't have the watchword, they don't get to see you. And so every day, the watchword would change. And when they got up in the morning, they would give it out, and they would pass it along, and it would get to all the troops by midday. And so what these emperors used to do is they would take advantage of this. I mean, you didn't become the emperor of Rome without a little bit of PR skill. And so what they started to do was they started to give watchwords that were like themes for the day. Themes to inspire the troops for the day. Themes that if the troops were saying it over and over and over again, this was the thought they wanted when they headed into battle. In fact, when Caesar and Pompey were battling, Caesar gave his troops this watchword, Venus will give us victory. That was the watchword for that day. And Pompey, on the other side, he said, fight like Hercules. And so those two mantras, those two watchwords were being spoken mouth to mouth all across the camp to fire up the troops and know our general has given us hope. He's given us a watchword. He's given us something to cling to. And as I was thinking about that this week, I thought, you know, God gives us watchwords all over the Bible. If you go back to the very end where we just were in chapter 21 and chapter 22, he gives out watchwords. If you're waiting for the time when all things are made new, if you're waiting for the time that Jesus returns, if you're waiting for the new city, here's your watchword. I am making all things new. Pass it around. I'm making all things new. I'm making all things new. You want to come into the presence of the king? He's making all things new. He says, it is finished, is our watchword. It is finished, was Jesus' cry on the cross. He says, behold, I am coming soon. You know, the last lines of the Bible are this watchword, behold, I'm coming soon. And John, when he hears the watchword, you know what he does? He says, amen. Come soon, Lord. Come soon. I've got the watchword. I'm waiting. In this psalm, we get a watchword. We get a watchword from the psalmist. If your life feels like it's being plunged into the heart of the sea, if you are besieged all around, if you feel like you are incurring the judgment of a God who is angry at you, here's your watchword. 
Most people, the most famous verse in this psalm is actually verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. We take this as a watchword in this psalm. And I want to reframe the context a little bit here because there's a better watchword in this psalm than be still and know that I am God. Because in the context of this psalm, this is when God is forcibly disarming the kingdoms of the earth. Right? This is a confusing passage. Come behold the works of the Lord. And you think these are going to be great things. How he has brought desolations to the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. <laughs> like, whoa. And then all of a sudden he says, be still and know that I am God. Sometimes we take that as, I need to be still in this moment. And that is certainly true. That is a biblical truth. We can be still and know that he is God. But this is more like when Jesus is out on the stormy seas and he says, be still, be calm. This is when God brings final judgment and forcibly disarms the kingdoms of the world. And he says, be still. Know that I am God. But then he gives a watchword to his people. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, we don't use the word hosts very often. We think when we think of heavenly hosts, we think like little angel babies. You know, this is, this is not what this means. This is the Lord of angel armies. Like in the book of Joshua, where Joshua comes upon this commander and he falls like he's dead and he says, are you going to be on our team or on the other team? And he says, neither. I'm the commander of the armies of God. He is the commander of the hosts of the Lord. The Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of innumerable armies is with us. The Lord, with all power at his disposal, is with us. And the God of Jacob is our fortress. Now, here's the watchword. Do you remember the story of Jacob? He's kind of a wily trickster guy. He wasn't really supposed to be the chosen one. His older brother was supposed to be the chosen one, but he gave him his birthright. And so then, when he's traveling, he comes upon this place, and all of a sudden in the night, he's attacked by a mysterious wrestler. This is a crazy story if you really just step back and think. He's sleeping in the middle of the night, and somebody tries to wrestle him and kill him. And he wrestles with him all night, and do you remember what Jacob says at the end? I won't let you go until you bless me. I won't let you go until you bless me. So I want to leave you with this thought. Here's the watchword. The God of the Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. The God who always blesses in the midst of the struggle is with us. The God who won't leave until he blesses us is with us. That's the watchword. Pass it on. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this psalm. We thank you for the reminder that you are with us. You are closer than anything we could experience on earth. Father, we thank you that you are our sustenance. You are like a river that flows up within us and help us this week, Lord, to overflow with the life that is in us. Father, we pray for your comfort this week. Lord, we know your promises, that you will wipe away every tear, that you will bring comfort, Lord, that the leaves of the tree of life are healing for the nations. Father, would you bring healing this week? Father, would you help us to remember that you've given us a watchword. Father, that you've given us things to hold on to, things that are going to be true until the moment we see you face to face and you write a new watchword on our forehead and we're with you forever. Father, give us that hope. Give us your comfort. Give us your peace this